You are listening to Sparking Wholeness with Erin Carey, where we talk about all things related to nutrition for mind, body, and soul. Are you ready? Let's do this. Hey, everybody, this is Erin Carey, and welcome back to Sparking Wholeness. Today, I am sitting down with Dr. Carolyn Ross. Dr. Carolyn Coker Ross is an internationally known author, speaker, expert, and pioneer of intergenerational trauma's effect on one's body, brain, and beliefs. A graduate of Andrew Wiles Fellowship Program in Integrative Medicine, Dr. Ross is the CEO of the Anchor Program, online coaching for food and body image issues, including binge eating, substance use disorder, and emotional stress eating. The former head of the eating disorder program at internationally renowned Sierra Tucson, Dr. Ross is currently a consultant for United States treatment centers that want to include her unique integrative medicine approach to help clients recovering from eating disorders and substance use disorders. She is the author of three books, the most recent of which is the food addiction recovery workbook. So Dr. Ross, thank you for being on the show. You're very welcome, Mary. I am just thrilled to have you. Yeah, I'm, I'm thrilled to have you on and to discuss primarily intergenerational trauma and the role it plays on our bodies. So can you break down what is intergenerational trauma? Yeah, the intergeneration, intergenerational trauma is the uh, notion that the effects of trauma can be passed from one generation to another. So in other words, let's just say, your mother experienced trauma when she was young and that led her to be a certain way, maybe more strict or more cautious uh, or more emotionally distant, for example, then those effects then can be passed to her children and even to her grandchildren. Now, the research on intergenerational trauma started in the 1960s and At that time, they were studying offspring of Holocaust survivors, and they found that people who had children who were were Holocaust survivors, if one or more parent had a history of post-traumatic stress disorder, then their children were more vulnerable to developing PTSD, and they also had higher risk for depression and anxiety and some uh, particular personality traits as well. So interestingly, this research isn't had didn't just start in the 1960s. There are even studies dating back to the Civil War, where they studied Union soldiers whose uh, sons, they if the soldiers had been prisoners of war, they found out that those men's sons had uh, higher risk for uh, certain medical issues as well. So. The studies are ongoing. We don't, you know, we're, I think, I think we're getting more and more in depth understanding of this and recognizing that it's not just a behavioral issue like, oh, well, my mother had trauma, so she parented me different. It, we're also seeing it on a um, biochemical point of view where we're seeing effects on the cells and the um, systems that manage stress in our body. And so that is really showing something that is, you know, something we can actually say is scientific. That That's fascinating that you can even see it on a cellular level. Yeah. Yeah. So what and does I, that look like? Um, on the cellular level, it looks like mainly 
the impact being on the stress response system. So the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis, try to say that fast 10 times. (laughs) (laughs) So we're seeing, you know, biochemical changes in that um, pathway that show up in subsequent generations. And I I think just as I mentioned, the animal studies are fascinating. Uh, There was one a few years ago where, uh, let's just say, parental mice were given a small shock in response to the smell when they were exposed to the smell of cherries. So they would send in the smell of cherries and then give them a little shock. And then they had little baby mice and then they had grandchildren mice. And none, neither the babies nor the grandbabies were exposed to the shock. However, all of them as well were acted anxious around the smell of cherries. So again, that sense of the effect of the trauma being passed to subsequent generations. And in this case, you know, to two uh, generations in the future, children and grandchildren. Wow, that's fascinating. And so when we're talking about trauma, this could be anything from sexual trauma to thinking of safety, like, you know, war, things like that, abuse. Um, It can even be racial trauma, right? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the adverse childhood experiences study, which is, uh, I think it's been going on for over 20 years now, uh, was the breakthrough in understanding that childhood adversity could have long-term, lifelong effects in adulthood. So they studied a particular set of traumas, including abuse, physical, uh, sexual, emotional abuse, neglect, physical or emotional, uh, having a divorce in the family, uh, a a mother or father with um, either substance use disorders or mental illness, someone in the family being incarcerated. Those were the main ones that they studied. I I hope I haven't forgotten any, but uh, anyway, they also now are looking at intergenerational trauma effects and they're studying trauma from conception all the way to death because we also know that when the baby's in the womb, if the mother is highly stressed or malnourished or, you know, has certain things happen in her life, that that can affect, you know, the baby before it's even born. So beyond, so the adverse child experiences study was the first really large and scientifically very strong study that connected childhood trauma to things like risk for substance use disorders, risk for depression, anxiety, uh, even for, you know, things like uh, suicide risk, as well as over 40 medical conditions, like the top five in our country, like diabetes, heart disease, stroke, cancer, like how does trauma translate to cancer? And then cancer risk is passed on, you know, to the children. We know that. We know there's a genetic component. And it, interestingly, though, trauma does not change our DNA. So then you have, have to ask yourself, well, what changes? How does it transmit to another generation? Well, it changes the what we call epigenetics, which is the expression 
of the gene so that the expression of the gene for cancer or diabetes or heart disease can be turned on by trauma. And then that that change in the gene is passed on to the next generation. Wow. I, I have chills when you're talking about this, because I think that this is such an important conversation to have because we do attribute a lot of things to genes. Oh, it's just in the genes, but also, mm-hmm. you know, when it comes to, you mentioned substance abuse disorders and, and we can even get into talking about, you know, eating disorders, binge eating, that, that kind of thing. What role is, you know, oh, well, it's somewhere in the genes or what role in it is it that it's the trauma that impacted the expression of the genes? Yeah, and I think that research is too early to say, mm-hmm. but we do know that, you know, binge eating disorder, anorexia, bulimia have a genetic component. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, we also know that the vast majority of people with any of the eating disorders have significant trauma. Mm-hmm. You know, I work in my program, the anchor program with people with binge eating, food addiction, and emotional eating. And I would say 99.9% of them have very severe trauma from childhood or early, you know, early adulthood. And so it's it's kind of hard to separate that out because we really don't know all the ways in which trauma affects us on that biochemical or cellular level. So we'll have to learn more as time goes on. Yeah, absolutely. I love the research that is happening and that we know what we know now. I think it is so important. And I want to take a second and pause and thank our sponsor for today's episode. Today's episode is sponsored by EveryPlate. If you, like me, are looking to cut down on food expenses, you can get more bang for your bite with America's Best Value Meal Kit. Every plate is 25% cheaper than grocery shopping, so you can count on great value week after week. Plus, you only pay for what you need with pre-portioned ingredients. What I love is that you can customize every plate meals to your liking with options to swap proteins and sides, you can change up your veggies if you want to, or you can add a protein to veggie dishes each week. You get to do you. Every plate provides plenty of delicious variety so you'll never get stuck in a cooking rut. With 25 tasty and affordable recipes to choose from each week, it's easy to find something for everyone. Plus, find delicious options all day long with up to 22 sides, snacks, desserts, and more. I love this because we are a family of five. I have three kids with all different tastes, and I've been able to find something for everybody with every plate. The price point is huge. I know a lot of people think that meal kits might be more expensive than going grocery shopping, but my family has managed to save money. And it also saves the time and the hassle of doing a grocery order or going to the store or whatever it is that you do with your groceries. This is cut back on so much for us. Another factor that I love about these every plate meals is that they are delicious. My daughter and her college age friend were over for spring break and her friend said it beat dorm food, it beat DoorDash. She had seconds. I think she actually might've had thirds because she enjoyed the loaded pork potato wedges that we made so much. I love this meal kit option for my busy family, my busy lifestyle. And I love that it allows for delicious, tasty food that makes everybody and our taste buds happy. Get $1.49 per meal by going to everyplate.com slash podcast and entering code SPARK149. 
That's up to a $110 value. You can get started with EveryPlate for just $1.49 per meal by going to everyplate.com slash podcast and entering code SPARK149. Now, Dr. Ross, getting back to this topic of intergenerational trauma and how this trauma impacts us on a biochemical level, I really think as I said before, it's so important that we have this research, but gosh, I think a hundred years ago, this was such a foreign concept. Absolutely. And you also mentioned race-based traumatic stress. And I think it's really important for us to talk about that. I know that, um, you know, a few years ago when George Floyd was murdered, the Harvard Business Review came out and said that George Floyd's murder was the collective traumatization of black people around the world. So now we're not just talking about how, you know, racist it is here in the United States. We're talking about worldwide, the how black and brown people, indigenous people are Mm -hmm. treated. Mm -hmm. And again, we look at things like, you know, why do Native Americans have such a high incidence of um, substance use disorders? Mm. Well, if you if you go back within just two generations, you know, children were kidnapped from their parents and taken to these schools where many of them were sexually abused. They were malnourished. They were overworked, et cetera. And then they get sent back to their homes where the parents are already traumatized by the loss of their children. And, you know, the cycle just keeps repeating itself over and over. So this trauma is never addressed. And the same thing for, you know, African-Americans in our country, when we talk about, you know, slavery, which really is, wasn't that far away. Um, you know, we can look at some of the traumas that enslaved people endured. And then we can see that, you know, people always talk about the high risk of death in COVID during the pandemic for people of color. Well, okay, why is that? You know, and they can point to, well, they may have more heart disease or diabetes, or maybe they're living in larger bodies. And that's the reason. No, the reason really is underlying trauma, because we know in parts of the United States that had large enslaved Black populations, those now descendants of the enslaved people consistently and continually have the worst health outcomes. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we have to really look at the day-to-day, you know, trauma that BIPOC individuals experience, whether it be microaggressions, you know, implicit bias or outright, you know, racist bias. Mm-hmm. So, and that is not an inconsequential effect on health, whether it be from COVID or, you know, substance use disorders, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Heart disease, diabetes, and so on are all higher in BIPOC individuals. Yeah. And it makes me wonder, I mean, does that go back to the HPA axis dysregulation of being in maybe a state of fight or flight at all times? And well, we we do know that a form of stress called toxic stress is the underlying cause 
of the effects of stress. So, you know, there's normal stress, like if you have kids and they go off to school for the first time, that's stressful. But usually there's a parent there with them and the stress is short lived. So that's what we call normal stress. And then there's the middle level of stress, which is, say, you you know have a death in the family or, or something else more severe happens, but you still have a caring adult to be there to help you get through it and you develop resilience from it. But toxic stress is severe stress that is prolonged. And that's where you get into, you know, abuse, sexual abuse, neglect, uh, poverty, all of those kinds of things can cause um, toxic stress. And toxic stress has that severe impact on the stress system that may turn on a gene for any of the things we're talking about. Mm -hmm. I remember reading at some point that um, even disorders such as, or illnesses such as asthma and bipolar disorder can be linked to racial trauma. Well, yeah, because it's the same thing. Is the gene for asthma being turned on? That's, it's the same epigenetic, you know, theory that Hmm. we believe that these types of stress can make certain conditions appear in a generation. And then once they, you know, are passed on, they're in the genetic code, essentially. Right. Yeah, no, that that makes a lot of sense. And so we have, even though, like you said, people say that these things like, um, when the children were sent to those training schools, the indigenous children were sent to the training schools. These things happened, you know, so long ago. It's been, a, I mean, that wasn't that long ago when you think about mm-hmm. how many generations ago it was and what right. that does to the DNA. Yeah, there's still people living who were children and who were themselves sent to those. I don't want to call them learning um, places because they really weren't places of learning. Right. They were the whole goal there, the motto was kill the Indian, save the man. So that pretty much says it all. They lost their culture, their language. They lost parental models. So they didn't know how to raise children because they hadn't had parents, essentially. Mm-hmm. You know, they were taken away from their parents. And that those repercussions are still, you know, really strong within the indigenous community. So... Yeah. And I'm, it's interesting that, that you bring that up because there's a popular show out right now called 1923. And I don't know if you're aware of it, but this is part of the storyline. And there are many people that are, that I've seen just on social media going, I didn't know this happened. Was this a real thing? Did this really happen? Surely this didn't really happen, but it really happened. It's another part of history that we've Kind of. Yeah, just put put under the rug. And, mm-hmm. you know, that's exactly what's happening now in certain states, including yeah. Florida, which is the biggest example where um, children and young adults are not allowed to learn about these things that happen. They mm-hmm. happen in history. Mm-hmm. I mean, we have proof. It's not it's not like this was made up. We have pictures of these children at the schools. We can talk to people, you know, indigenous people who went to those schools. And that's not made up. We found in Canada recently, they found a whole uh, mass burial site of children mm-hmm. who had been in residential schools. Mm-hmm. Same thing here. I mean, we, we all of the colonized countries did the same exact thing. And we have proof 
of slavery. I don't know why we want to push it under the rug, uh, other than, you know, people don't want to feel bad about something that happened. But we, if we, I think, I don't remember who said it, but if you ignore history, you're doomed to repeat it. Absolutely. Yeah. And that, that is a quote. It's not my quote, but I can't remember who it was. And so I think by depriving our children of this knowledge, we are handicapping ha handicapping them. And I remember, you know, I do a lot of trainings on diversity, equity, inclusion for various um, organizations and uh, treatment centers and so on. And I remember one woman who actually was in Birmingham and she said she was so angry when she found out that she had gone through all of her schooling and no one had ever talked about these things that had happened, like slavery. And I mean, you know, people think, oh, slavery, yeah, it was a small thing. I don't need to know about that. But it wasn't a small thing. And just like the indigenous, the way indigenous people were treated was not a small thing. And she was really upset. And then she, they have a museum there. Um, that's similar to the African-American Museum in D.C. And when she went there, she was just shocked. You know, like this is a non-BIPOC non person who was shocked that all of this stuff was part of our history. And yet nobody's teaching it. It's, yeah. it's incredible, actually. <laughs> yeah, it, it blows my mind, even because of what you said at the very beginning, we, we know the cellular impact. We know the body impact throughout generations. This is impacting people. Sure. It happened however long ago, however you want to say it, but this is impacting people today. The effects of it are still in our bodies today. Yeah, exactly. And I think it gives you a better understanding of why certain cultures have certain problems that we are blaming them for when in fact they are the result of colonization and all of the trauma of colonization. So I think if, you know, if you want to understand, you know, indigenous people, BIPOC people, Latinx people have their own trauma, mm -hmm. of course, African-Americans, black people, you know, et cetera. If you want to understand that, if we want to be able to live in peace in this country, which is a melting pot and is fast becoming not uh, majority non-white. That's, and there's no way that's going to be turned back because those children who are going to be parents for the next generation, they're already born. So it's happening. And I think it, it would behoove people to really come to terms with, you know, this happened. It's not your fault. Like it's not my fault that that happened because we weren't even alive and we don't have to worry about taking blame. What we should be worried more about is understanding the impact of those mm -hmm. actions and how they have changed and benefited our country more than anything. Yeah. And, and working toward healing and, yeah. and having, I mean, I think there's, there's an important aspect to having a trauma-informed approach to to life <laughs> <You know? Yeah. laughs> I wish that's in a perfect good, world that's a good statement a trauma-informed approach <laughs> to life that's really important yeah because when I talk to patients a lot about their eating disorders or their addictions 
that most of them have no idea that their trauma is what set them up to develop those problems. And when they find out, they are like, oh my gosh, my now it makes so much sense. You know, I I had ADHD, I had a substance problem, you know, I may have binge eating disorder. Now I get it. This they're able to start connecting those dots. And it makes a huge difference for people to know the causes of why they are the way they are. Mm, yeah, absolutely. So can you tell me a little bit more about your program and, and what you work through? Yeah, sure. The anchor program is for people with binge eating, um, com, you know, compulsive overeating, food addiction, emotional eating. And, you know, we, we mainly help people get to the root cause of why they are have such a disordered relationship with food and with their bodies. And once we uh, help them understand the root cause, then we take them along this journey where they are able to connect the dots between, okay, something happened to me. And then this led to, you know, me developing uh, core beliefs, like I'm not worthy, I'm not good enough. And it also led to me having trouble uh, regulating my emotions. And so I've been using food or I've been using alcohol to deal with, to self-medicate my emotions. And when you connect all those dots, dots, it makes a lot of sense. And then from there, we can help people rebuild their relationship with food and their bodies, learn new ways of managing and coping with their emotions and help them change their core beliefs from ones that don't serve them any longer to what ones that will help them. Yeah. And I think it's important in recovery programs. I think a lot of times there's this push towards identifying with the disorder, identifying with the addiction. I am an addict. I'll always be an addict. It's, you know, my fault, my problem, you know, it's just who I am. I think we can tend to over-identify with that. Whereas if you're working at it from a trauma approach, it takes a different spin. Yeah. I think in the language area, even even with addictions, there's been a shift towards being able to say, I have substance use disorder. I am not, you know, an addict. It is something I have. And the same for eating disorders as well. I have anorexia. I'm not an anorexic, which even within my career, we used to say she's an anorexic or she's a bulimic. But now we, we have worked on and I continue to work on, um, you know, recognizing that it, it, there is no identity for these things. It's just a disease that people have. Yeah. And how is it possible for somebody to go from, you know, having found themselves in the middle of this disorder disease to creating a healthy relationship with food and body image? How do you make that Work. Yeah, well, you know, just as I said, when I talked about the anchor program, it it is a journey and it includes, you know, finding that root cause and then connecting the dots. And I think most people, at least the ones with binge eating and food addiction, many of them have mistakenly focused on weight loss as the solution to their problem. And it, if you're honest, you know, even when you've lost weight, you still have these negative feelings about yourself and still have trouble 
you know, dealing with your emotions and stress and so on. So I think it's just important for people to recognize, number one, that it's not about the food and it's not about the weight. It's really about how we use food to self-soothe or to, you know, distract ourselves from other things that have happened in our lives. So we're shifting from asking the question, what's wrong with me, which so many of my patients do, like, why can't I get rid of this? Why can't I, you know, like I'm, I'm successful in every area of my life, except for this one. Why can't I do this and shift that question to what happened to me and how has that affected me now? And that's, that's really the journey. And it's not, uh, you know, when you diet, you think about, oh, I'll just be on this diet for three months and then everything will be fine. Well, it's not a three month uh, process. It's a much longer process. And I think it's important for people to recognize they have to commit to, you know, this longer term process to be able to, you know, manage themselves in a different way. Yeah, that's, and you talked about core beliefs. How can somebody change their core beliefs? What are, what are some ways that, that they can hack into that? Wow. I wish I had a hack for that, but the first, <laughs> the first thing is um, being aware of the core beliefs. Cause a lot of people don't realize that in their back, you know, in the back of their minds or in their operating system is this negative core belief like I'm not lovable I'm not worthy I'm not good enough I'm weak or it, I'm not perfect whatever it is and that's what drives their whole program so to speak and so I think the hardest part is really coming to awareness and then making a conscious decision about whether you want to continue using those core beliefs and then there's just um, there's work that you have to do to interrupt the use of those core beliefs in your life. And that work is, you know, it can be hard. It can be frustrating. It takes a long time, but eventually people are able to do that if they do the work. Mm -hmm. Starting with that awareness. And I think, you know, going back to that, that trauma impact, right. And the awareness that maybe you didn't feel safe when you were supposed to feel safe. Right. And where do we get safety? We get safety from food. And so how often are food issues tied in to that aspect of things? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a great example of the link between food behaviors and deeper issues related to trauma. And I think that's, you know, I mean, that's definitely the work that I do with my patients. And I think that's the work that anyone struggling with this needs to do. But a lot of places, even inpatient programs that everyone gets sent to is all about just change your behaviors, just stop binging, just stop restricting, stop purging. And then, you know, we'll use some tips and tricks to help you not go back to it. But for the long run, that doesn't work very well because these messages are deeply embedded in our life, from our life experiences, they're deeply embedded in our psyche and you can't overcome them with just tips and tricks. Mm. You, know, you have to really root them out and, you know, do that kind of more in-depth work. And I find that a lot of people are not also willing to give up the notion that just losing weight will solve all their problems. And so 
that's, you know, I actually turn away more people from mm-hmm. the anchor program than I take because if you're still um, attached to what you weigh, to the number on the scale, if that's your biggest measure of success, then, you know, that's that's not going to work, number one. And number two, that's not what we do. Like, that's not what I do. Mm-hmm. There are plenty of places you can go to lose weight, but we know that diets don't work. They never have, and they never will. We're Now we're back on a new, it's sort of like back to the future. <laughs> on, uh, doctors prescribing a lot of weight loss medications. And we did that before and that didn't work. It actually killed people. Mm-hmm. We're using, you know, some of the same drugs and some others. I don't have a lot of faith that that's going to work. I mean, everybody has to do, do what they feel is best for their own physical health and well-being. But, you know, I've been in this business for a long time and I've seen, you know, the, all the diets come by. I've seen FinFin, the medications come by. And what it comes down to is, do you want to spend the rest of your life chasing the dream of being thin or do you want to? you know, do something different. Do you want to actually be happy? And being mm-hmm. dead is not going to make you happy, honestly. No. And I'm, I'm so glad that you mentioned that. I, it's funny. I um, was just thinking the other day, it has been four years since I've stepped on the scale. When I do go to the doctor, I tell them, you know, don't tell me, I don't want to know. Or I turn away. I look the other direction. You, cause you can, you have the option to do that. And a lot of people just, or you have, have the option to. not to be weighed even. That's true. Right. And I, that's a new one for me. I didn't even realize yeah. that. I thought, I thought we all just had to, um, mm-hmm. because I've always just the way that I'm built. My BMI is always, you know, that little bit higher zone, but VMI doesn't count for muscle yeah. mass doesn't count for, you know, there's a lot of things it doesn't account for. So it's yeah. just, I think we're still kind of even in the archaic model of what healthy is. It perfectly true. Yeah. It's an archaic model. And even the research has shown over and over that measuring VMI is not going to be an indicator of whether you're healthy or not. So a lot of people have gone from saying they want to lose weight to saying they want to be quote unquote healthy. And so we have to ask ourselves, are we just playing uh, word games here? Because most of them think that in order to quote unquote be healthy, they have to lose weight. And really the studies don't support that. The research studies don't support that. And, And whether doctors are pushing you or not, you need to be aware that health is not dependent on weight. Um, Doctors aren't taught about nutrition. There's, you know, an archaic system in medicine where it takes 17 years for any kind of thoughts to change. I mean, back in the 50s, doctors were advertising cigarettes on TV. <laughs> you know, really. So <laughs> this is not much different than that, honestly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and absolutely. Doctors in white coats were saying, you know, smoke camel. This is mm-hmm. like... Wow. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, that that's, you're, you're right. And I think that that's important for people to hear. And I think those, those are all good check-ins that we can make for ourselves as to, okay, what am I doing to support my health today? And it might be, I'm, I'm laying down to take a rest for a minute. It might be, I'm spending time with somebody I care about. It does. It can have nothing to do with food. I am petting my dog, which yeah. 
gives us uh, spikes of dopamine in the brain and that makes us feel happy and less stressed. Mm -hmm. So I think, yeah, I think it's time to really examine this archaic model and to replace it with something that gives people freedom because the whole chasing after the thin dream is keeping people hostage, particularly women. And so if you want to keep women under control, yeah, tell them they're fat. Mm-hmm. And then maybe you can keep them under control. But I think most women are smart enough to eventually get tired of that. And we need to really support women and not focusing on the number on the scale and getting on with your life. I mean, look at all the things you're not doing because you're worried about your weight. Absolutely. You know, not dating. You're not going forward in your career you're not going after promotions you're not writing that book you wanted to write all of those things don't require you to be thin Mm, yeah that's a good reminder and how many amazing foods are we refusing to try (laughs) because we've been told something about an ingredient in that food there you know those there are those things that hold us back too because one person said this is not and so how do you how do you find that line right with especially when it comes to nutrition, when there's so much noise. Yeah, that's true. There is so much noise, but our approach in the anchor program is there are no bad foods. There are no good foods. There's just food. Now, not everything we call food is really food, right? A lot of it is something out of a laboratory that the, you know, Cheetos, come on, that you may enjoy Cheetos, but they're not really food. Mm -hmm. (laughs) there's something that someone concocted in a laboratory but there's nothing wrong with eating some of those either but my point is we need to really look look at not so much you know that we have to restrict all those foods that we were told are on the bad list but we need to really reconnect with our bodies and and see what happens when we eat certain foods what happens in our body when we eat those foods And the body can tell you, I like this, but I don't like that. You know, I like maybe a less of this, but a little bit of this. That that takes, that's what's called intuitive eating. And it does take time to do that. But that's a true way of understanding what to eat rather than some list that someone gave you. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's really important. And then if we really want to go back to trauma, that is a way that we disengage with our bodies many times. So it's hard to know what food works for us or not. We have to do a lot of deep work to tune in and be willing to partner with our bodies when our bodies have not always been our, our, our friends or so we thought. Yeah, exactly. You're, you're exactly right. And I think that's what we all need to do because being out of your body is a recipe for disaster. You know, when you're not in touch with your emotions, your body sensations, you get into things that you shouldn't be into. And I'm not just talking about food. I'm talking about relationships or friendships even, et cetera, et cetera. So it does take time and effort to reconnect with your body. And the place to start with that, which if you want to hack is just to be neutral towards Mm. your body. Instead of saying, I hate my thighs, just saying something neutral about your thighs, you know, instead of saying, you know, I hate my fat belly. What can you say that's neutral about your belly? And it could be something like, I'm 
I'm evolving, changing, you know, I'm working on myself. Mm-hmm. So that takes you out of that negative mindset that is part of the vicious cycle. You feel bad about your body, then you try to restrict and starve yourself, and then you can't keep that up. So then you binge, and then you feel worse. And it's just a vicious circle that you go around over and over and over. So the first place to start is body neutrality. Just give your body a break. Mm, I like that. Yeah. And you don't have to, don't have to sit there and say, I love my body. I love my body. I love it. It's yeah. just, what am I noticing? And here's a statement. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. That's, exactly. that's good. Cause I, you know, I can say I love laundry all day long, but I can't make it true. You know, yeah. and I think that's so true. Is- for me, it's uh, washing dishes. I can yeah. say I love it, but I really don't, but I have been able to get to the point where I'm neutral about it. Mm-hmm over years of working on it, you know, yeah. and it serves so, a purpose. <laughs> yeah, it does. And, and, you know, I think one of the things we don't understand is how much our thoughts govern how we feel. So when I say to myself, Oh God, I have to do the dishes again, or, ah, this is just ridiculous. Why do I always have to, you know, then I'm, my thoughts then are impacting how I feel about that activity. When I have neutral thoughts about it, then it's just like, oh, I have five minutes. I might as well empty the dishwasher, you know, mm-hmm. or I have five minutes. I might as well, you know, clean these glasses or whatever I have to do. So it's really about being aware of your thoughts and how those really change how you feel about most anything. Yeah. Yeah. That is so important. Wow. This has been such, such an interesting, we've kind of been all over the place, but not really. I think it all ties together. Yeah. And recognizing trauma and and its long-term intergenerational impacts. So Mm -hmm. if we recognize that we need to work on that so that we don't pass it to the next generation. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I have one last question for you. It's my favorite question to ask, you know, the name of the show is sparking wholeness. So if you could give one piece of advice to spark someone toward wholeness, what would it be? That's not an easy question to spark someone else or myself. Anyone. Yeah. To spark, maybe to spark yourself toward wholeness. <laughs> okay. I would say, you know, what sparks me towards wholeness is being with my kids. So I guess if I were to give advice, even if you don't have kids, find something that makes you feel good, good about mm-hmm. yourself, whether it's your pet, you know, I have people who love their dogs, like children, or if you have children and you love them, but that's what sparks me to wholeness. I, I want to be better for my kids. I want to work harder, you know, to be healthy so that I don't leave my kids prematurely. And yeah, mm-hmm. they've been, uh, a real force in my life. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Well, tell me where can people learn more about your anchor program and um, get your workbook and all of that? Yeah. You can go to anchorprogram.com and you can also learn more about the other work that I do, including the uh, diversity trainings on carolynrossmd.com. That's C-A-R-O-L-Y-N r-o-s-s-m-d.com. All right. Well, thank you. This has been so helpful. I know that this is hopefully going to spark some ideas for people and, and help them to start thinking through processing their trauma and, and, and what their responses are in relation to that. So thank you again for being on the show. Yeah, it was really great to be with you, Erin.
I appreciate it. The tiniest spark leads to the biggest blaze. And I hope that today's episode sparks you on a journey to healing and wholeness. Thanks for listening to Sparking Wholeness. For more information on what I do and my coaching programs, or maybe just to reach out and say, hey, find me at sparkingwholeness.com or on Instagram at sparkingwholeness. Have a fabulous week.